Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, and we'll be concluding our study in 1 Thessalonians this evening. And uh, Lord willing, next Sunday evening, we'll begin in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church as we continue our way through this correspondence uh, between the apostle and this early church which he planted. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter. Apostle Paul writes these words, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under an oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, Father in heaven, we come to your word. We ask, Lord, that you would impart to our hearts and minds the truth that you have for us. Assure us of those things which you have accomplished for us in Christ. And on that foundation, on that basis, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to carry out those things which you've commanded us to do through your servant Paul in this letter that he wrote to this early church. May we receive it as your word to us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who doesn't appreciate clear instructions? Sometimes we purchase a uh, product, uh, some kind of machinery or gadget for the kitchen, and it comes with instructions that are impossible to read. My wife likes to say that she doesn't look at the words, she just looks at the pictures. She needs to see a video or the pictures of how it's done. Very often, instructions are poorly written. They're unclear, and so they're relatively worthless. But here at the end of 1 Thessalonians, we come to a set of very clear instructions. In fact, in this passage, we find, by my count, 17 separate commands that Paul gives to the Thessalonian church as he brings this letter to a close. He gives them very clear instructions for how they are to live with one another. Yet before we look at all of those imperatives, all of those commands which which he issues... It's important that we recognize that these commands are founded upon statements about what God has done. Sometimes you'll hear people say that every imperative in Scripture, that is every command in Scripture, is based in an an indicative. That is a statement of fact, a statement about uh, what is true for us in the gospel, what God has accomplished for us in Christ, and so on and so forth. And so it is here At the end of 1 Thessalonians, as Paul gives us all of these various commands, they too are grounded in the things that God has accomplished. We can see that 
here if we look down to verse 23. This, these verses in verse 23 and 24, which I very often read as a benediction to the church as we close our service, as I did this morning. Here Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Of course, that first statement is not so much an indicative, but more of a prayer, a, a request made to God. May God do this for you. And what is he asking that God would do for the Thessalonians? As he prays to the one who he calls the God of peace, may he sanctify you completely, not in part, but entirely, wholly. And may your whole spirit, all your spirit, your soul, your body, every part of you, your whole being, may that be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's prayer for these Thessalonians Christians. And then he assures them that the one who called them, because he is faithful, because this is true, because this indicative is something that we can bank upon, that God is faithful, that he has called them, and if we are in him, if we are in Christ, then he has called us too, that he will surely do this very thing. Here Paul is praying in line with God's express will. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And then he ends the letter with those, these words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Another way of expressing a prayer to the Lord, that may God, by his grace, do these very things. These form the foundation for the text before us. These prayers and these statements concerning God's faithfulness and it's something that flows from everything that we've seen throughout Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. If you think back to the very beginning of our study in this book, for those who were here, you remember how we, we looked at what happens when the gospel comes to town. That is, when the gospel came to Thessalonica through the preaching of Paul, we saw that it came with power, that the triune God caused the gospel to take root in that city. And the whole of these first... Uh, Almost all of the first three chapters, in fact, the whole of the first three chapters, is just Paul's accounting of how God caused the gospel to take root in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians in the midst of great trials, in the midst of great difficulties, in the midst of conflict and opposition and persecution. Nevertheless, these Christians received God's word, implanted in their soul. They held it fast, and they endured with faith. And the fruit of that was evident in the good works that they demonstrated, their acts of faithfulness, their acts of perseverance, the way in which they blessed others who came through Thessalonica and others who were other uh, Christians who were uh, in, in, in nearby cities, so that their faith was well known throughout the whole region and beyond. Remember, you remember that, how Paul spoke of that, and how the first three chapters of this letter was all about what God had done in their lives. And even when Paul began to doubt, began to wonder, will they hold fast after he had been driven out of Thessalonica, we recall. He had been driven out after only a short space of time teaching them. And he worried himself, wondering, have they continued to believe? And so he sent Timothy back, and Timothy came to Paul after visiting the Thessalonians with a good report. They're holding fast. When the gospel came to Thessalonica, it came by the power of God. And so the, this whole letter then is, is then looking at the whole range of the Christian life, if you will, 
from the perspective of the Thessalonian Christians. The gospel came to them by the power of God. They were held fast by the power of God. He was sanctifying them by the power of God. Paul gave them instructions for the way in which God wanted them to live, telling them very clearly, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Spoke to them about purity and the necessity of loving one another. And then he looked forward to that great day, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed hope. Looked to the, that, that, that final event in the Christian life here in this particular age, in this particular life. And looking at the whole range of the Christian life then, from the time they received the gospel throughout their life, being sanctified, all the way to the coming of Christ, he encouraged them to continue holding fast, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, because God is faithful to do what he has promised. That is the foundation upon which the whole Christian life rests. The one who calls us, he is faithful. And so as we look forward to that great day when our Lord Jesus will come, and we pray that he will keep us blameless, that he will preserve us faithful to that day, we can rest assured that he will indeed do this. He will indeed answer this prayer because he is faithful and he has promised this clearly and explicitly. This is the base truth upon which all of the commands that we're going to consider now rest. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to recognize it. It's important to see this because it gives us certainty as we learn to trust not in ourselves but in God's will and God's power. It gives us certainty as we seek to live according to his purposes. And so as we see these commands, we don't receive them then as commands that are uh, a great burden, that we feel like we can never live up to those things. But we receive them with the recognition that if this is indeed God's will for us, as Paul has stated very clearly, that he will enable us to do this as we prayerfully seek to follow him. So let's look now at the commands that close this letter. We can group them, though there are 17 of them, we can group them uh, into a few categories. We have a set of commands that concern how to treat your leaders. Paul was concerned with how the Thessalonians will treat their leaders. And then he gives them a set of commands that deal with how they are to treat one another, how they're to live with one another and, and, and interact with one another and encourage one another in view of the coming of the Lord. Then he's going to give them some further commands about how to, not to treat their leaders, uh, the, you know, the, the ones who are laboring in their midst, but how to respond to the leading of the Lord himself. We'll see those in verse 16 through 22. And then he gives some fi a final set of commands with uh, instructions for how to respond to Christian leaders who might be outside of the church, those who might come, like Paul and others who ministered with him. So let's look then in verse 12 and 13 and see Paul's instructions for how we are to treat leaders. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work be at peace among yourselves now if I were to simply stand before you and preach those two verses uh, really quite randomly without having proceeded through this book you might say that's a bit self-serving but because it's our natural practice to go through a text through a book of scripture and to exposit the word we come to it and it's part of uh, what's before us and so we must consider it but I say that because I, I just want to be clear, I, I, um, I have no complaint in this regard. I have only gratitude in my heart for the way I have been treated as your pastor since I've been here. And I'm, I, I have a deep gratitude for your kindness and your 
willingness to receive the word and to be taught and to, uh, to obey the word. I, it's just uh, one of the things that has absolutely struck me since I've been here, um, the humility with which uh, all of you have been willing to respond to the word. And so it's almost as if I feel that I need not say anything in this regard. Simply I can read the words and pass over them. And yet I think it is important to speak to this subject of uh, how we are to respond to those who are leaders among us for a few reasons. It will be applicable in our life together. One is that both history and experience teaches us that at some point in our life together, this will become an issue. History and experience teaches us that it will become an issue where people, for one reason or another, doubt those who are called to be leaders in the midst of the church, who call them into question, who maybe even begin to challenge them in a way that is improper and wrong. To be sure, the church, the congregation, I, I speak of when I say the church, I mean the congregation, I mean you all as the members of this church, you have a responsibility to ensure that those who are called to preach and to teach and to serve as deacons in this context hold fast to the word. Uh, and, and so that part of that responsibility is to search the scriptures, to see if the things that are said from a pulpit by me or by anyone else who would stand up to preach and teach are in fact true, to put those things to the test challenge those things. And if someone is found to be teaching a false doctrine, as we see, for example, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he calls upon the Galatian church to take action and to remove that person, to uh, not permit that person to speak and teach. There is a role that the church must play, where there are times where the church must intervene and take action to uh, remove a person from being an elder, from teaching, from preaching, or even if someone is, uh, it rises to a severity where they are a false teacher, to put them out of the church. But in general, in general, most pastors labor with an honest heart, I think. Most pastors labor with a desire to work through the word and to exposit it and explain it in a way that is faithful, and they do it to the best of their ability. But they may struggle at times. And sometimes in history and sometimes in our own experience, we've certainly seen where uh, churches have, uh, so, whether it's a few or many within a church, turn against a pastor, turn against elders, turn against deacons or someone else who is responsible to labor within a church and might um, not be at peace with them, but rather uh, uh, turn against them in a way where they would dishonor them or they would uh, reject the admonition and the instruction that they receive from them. Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to fall into this trap. It's something that, as he probably is writing this letter from Corinth, something that takes place in Corinth that he'll address there in Corinth in his first letter. In Corinth, they, um, they ultimately started forming factions under their favorite apostles. Some would say, I'm of Paul. Some would say, I'm of, I'm of Peter. Some would say, I'm of Paulus. Whoever their, whoever their favorite teacher was, they organized in factions under those individuals. And Paul had to write that first letter to the Corinthian church to admonish them not to live like that. For Paul and Peter and Apollos were simply servants of the same Lord, that we are all to be united. Under, the, under our one Lord, under our one head, and responding well to all of these teachers who God has gifted differently to serve his church. That problem would crop up uh, not 50 years later in Corinth. Some years later, around the year 95 AD or so, uh, some, some men deposed the, the appointed elders in the church in Corinth and 
The church in Rome actually wrote them a letter, probably written by their pastor, named, a man named Clement, wrote them a letter challenging them to repent and to, to restore those, those elders who had been deposed. And in that letter, Clement uh, says something toward the end of the letter, something like this, you know you've done this before, but at least back then you were organizing yourself under apostles. Now it's just mere men. And he challenged them to go and get that letter that Paul had written them, that first letter, and to read it again. Our history, we're told uh, through the accounts that come to us through history, that the Corinthian church received that admonition well because they read not only 1 Corinthians but Clement's letter for many, many years to come. But we see that's one example, one historical church, where this kind of thing cropped up, where a church would turn against those people who were appointed to lead them, those people who were called to work and serve them and to labor in the teaching and the preaching of the word. And we know just from experience and history that it's not just a Corinthian problem. It's not just a first century problem. It's one that's been with us throughout the ages. Even some of us surely have experienced it in our own life. So what Paul is saying here on the front end, recognizing that in so many of our hearts, there is something that chafes against the idea that someone might have some authority over us, that someone might admonish us when we're wrong. There's a pride that rebels against this idea. And he doesn't want them to live in this way where they despise or they dishonor those who are appointed to labor among them. Look at how he describes those people who are called to this very task. He wants them to respect those, or you could say acknowledge, recognize officially, you might even uh, render that, to, to respect or to acknowledge those who, and he describes them as laborers, who labor among you, that they, they work hard in order to teach you the word, in order to train you, in order to instruct you. And they are indeed over you and the Lord. There's a key qualifier. They're not over you because they're somehow you're better. They're somehow greater than you or, or uh, more important than you, but they are placed over you positionally in the Lord for a time, and not so that they might lord it over you, but so that they might serve you. We, here we reflect even as we think about uh, where we've been in Mark's gospel in Sunday school and how Jesus taught his own disciples, saying that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over those whom they rule, but it shall not be so among you. But he who would be great must be servant of all, right? This is the kind of life that Jesus has called his disciples to. And this is the kind of life that leaders in the church are called to. They're called to labor. They're called to toil. They're called to serve, even as they are appointed with some measure of authority. It's the authority of a shepherd, one who is seeking the good of others, not primarily and first his own good. And sometimes he has to take on the uncomfortable position of admonishing somebody, of correcting somebody, of instructing someone who's thinking wrongly, or is acting in a way that is improper. And that's never a comfortable position to take. And yet, pastors must do this. Elders must do this. Sometimes even deacons must engage in that kind of activity. And it's uncomfortable. And as we think about our life together as a church and we look forward into the future, we recognize, as we've discussed uh, before, that not too, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to look to appoint men to serve as elders not just having one pastor, but a plurality of elders. We're going to look to appoint men to serve as deacons, not just having one deacon, but having many men who are called to serve in that way. And so this is not just a thing for me to speak about how you respond to me. 
But as we think about those who will be called to serve in that role, it's, uh, it's an admonition that continues to apply. We are called to honor those whom the Lord calls and appoints through this church to labor and to serve and to instruct the sheep. We're to esteem them very highly in love, Paul says. We're to think very well of them. Not because, again, they're the greatest of men and they're the, the, the strongest or the, the most uh, worthy of our esteem, but because we recognize that God has called some to serve in this role, and in love we esteem them highly because of their work. Again, not because of some quality that they have intrinsically to themselves, but because of the work to which they've been called. This is how Paul would have the Thessalonians respond to those who he and Timothy and Silas have appointed to serve in that church. And we ought to apply this in our own life and think in the same way. We ought not to be people who say that, uh, to establish a, a list of qualifications for elders or for deacons that aren't in the list that we find in 1 Timothy 3 or the list that we find in Titus chapter 1. I won't go through some of them, but there was times when I was candidating at different churches and, and seeking a, uh, to, to, to find a pastorate before this church called me, and I, I recall that some of the churches rejected my application for some of the silliest uh, reasons. And, you know, for instance, having a, a child who was uh, uh, too young, five years old, and, and uh, I thought, well, that's funny. I, I can't find that particular qualification uh, in 1 Timothy 3. But in any case, we moved on. It was, uh, you know, we, we sometimes we form qualifications that aren't there, that God has not laid down. The qualifications are high. They're very difficult. It's already, it's already a, a, a very difficult list of, of qualifications. We should not add to that list our own personal preferences, you see, especially as we think about whom we might call and we, whom we might ask to serve in some of these roles going forward. We should rather uh, simply look to the qualifications that the Lord has set forward. And we also need to be loving and gracious, as Paul calls us here, too. And just by way of analogy, as you, many of you know, I served in the Navy. And um, throughout your Navy career, you serve under a whole number of officers of, of, of diff different um, skill levels and different gifting. Some of those officers will eventually rise through the ranks and become admirals. Some will uh, merely captain ships, which is still a great thing, and some will go on to uh, leave the Navy and, and, and serve in the, in the business world in, in, in great ways, and others are just ordinary average guys who do a good job but may never be a, a General Washington or a General Eisenhower, you see. And yet they're competent, they're qualified. Not every leader in every setting is going to have the same skill and gifting, and yet if the person is qualified, we ought to honor that person, we ought to receive the work that they do and honor the work that they do. Just as the same as uh, it, when I was in the Navy, as I use this illustration, if someone didn't, um, if we had one particularly uh, excellent officer that we might have worked under, and then another who was particularly average, we might have been fooled into really despising that, that very average officer because this other one was so great. We thought, well, this guy's really, he's, he's worth nothing. And uh, it ought, that ought not to be the case. Certainly in the, being a pastor, being an elder, is not the same as having command in the military. But in that same way that one might honor somebody, um, regardless of their gifting, regardless of their ability, regardless of their personal charisma, all of that, we are called to honor them. They meet the qualifications. They toil, they work, 
They have been given a labor by the Lord. Paul calls us to esteem them highly, to honor them with love. So we should. Well, moving forward then, as I said, I, I have nothing but gratitude in my heart for the way I've been treated, and I, I have no, no admonition for you all on that front. Looking forward then, as we think about Paul's next exhortation, he teaches us further how we ought to respond to one another. That is how we ought to relate to one another. He writes in verse 14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. We'll just take each of these commands one by one. This is a rather strong action that he tells us to take, and we recall earlier in Thessalonians how Paul wrote about uh, the importance of working with our hands, the importance of, um, of, of uh, being faithful as a, uh, with the work that God has given us, with the skills he's given us, and not being given to idleness, not being given to laziness. This had a particular uh, issue, perhaps, in the Thessalonian church because of some of their misunderstandings concerning the day of the Lord and concerning um, how soon Christ might return. But regardless of those situations, there were certainly those within their midst who were living a life of idleness, a life of laziness. And Paul tells the Thessalonians to be rather stern with them in their rebuke. Admonish them. Admonish them to work with their hands, as we read earlier in 1 Thessalonians. But that's not the way we're to respond to everybody. He goes on to say, encourage the faint-hearted. You could render this encourage the discouraged, or uh, it's very literally the little souls. Uh, faint heart is in, in English is a good way to render that idea. Those who are uh, given to be discouraged, who are often downtrodden, and we're to encourage those people. We're to build them up. We're to strengthen them. We're to help them. And similarly, you see the next command, help the weak. Again, here, you can look at the, looking at the words. We, we don't need to retranslate every single word, but there's so many wonderful words that are, that are so... Uh, they're hard to capture the full weight of them, but the idea here is of being devoted to the weak, devoting yourself to them, right? What I'm, I think the picture that's being painted here that we need to see is how Paul is calling us to live very differently than the world would call us, even in our, especially in our 21st century American context. We thought, we think about what, what he said about leaders. Certainly as Americans, uh, we don't like to think that way. We want to be strong and independent and captains of our own lives. In the same way, as we think about how we're to respond to one another, when someone is too weak, uh, we would say, well, you know what, uh, they're, they're slowing me down. They're keeping me back. I'm going to move on and, and hang out with those who are strong enough to keep up. That's certainly how corporations work. There was, um, some of you may know, that uh, General Electric had a policy some years ago where every year 10 or 20% of the, the lowest performers were fired every year, laid off and replaced. So they were constantly churning out the, lo the, the people who were evaluated at the low end of, uh, of, of their workforce in order to try and con consistently improve the quality of the workforce. Well, that was the idea that this particular CEO had to improve the performance of General Electric to return the best value for his shareholders. That's not the way that we're called to live in the church. We're to be devoted to the weak. We're to help the weak. We're to encourage those faint hearts among us and Paul adds, be patient with them all. The Lord is working to sanctify his people, but in his good pleasure, in his wisdom, he doesn't work necessarily at the same pace with every single one of us. Part of that is so that we might demonstrate the love of the Lord for one another in patience with others. So Paul teaches 
Thessalonians. Be patient with them all. And see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This morning as we were going through the parable of the Good Samaritan, I mentioned how um, in, in the New Covenant we reframe the idea that we're to love our neighbor as ourself in terms of loving one another within the context of the church. But in no way does that relieve us from the necessity of loving those who are outside of the church. We see that it, there's a particular love that we show for one another, even in this text, but still we continue to love those who are outside. And you can see that, I said this morning, we'll see it, and here, we, here it is. You see it in this text. Do good to one another and to everyone. That, that, those phrase, the, the, that language of one another is uh, language in the New Testament that we typically see applied within the church between one Christian to another. But here Paul then expands that. And you can see how this would be so important for the Thessalonians. Remember their story. Remember how Paul came into Thessalonica and very shortly after was driven out by mobs. Remember how the Thessalonian Christians were uh, forced to uh, pay a sum of money in order to, uh, uh, for security, that they lost some of their uh, possessions, that they were persecuted by the people in their own uh, city, by people whom they knew, their neighbors. And there would have been a strong temptation to repay evil for evil, to do tit for tat, to respond in kind, to seek revenge on their own account. And this easily can extend into the church as well. Paul says, see to it. It's a strong command. See to it that no one in the church does this. We must not repay evil for evil. We might be able to imagine a situation in our own context where we or someone in our midst might be mistreated by those outside of our congregation, might be even uh, uh, mistreated in, in ways that would cause great harm to their person or their property. And we would be right to seek legal remedies to avail ourselves of the justice that our system of justice might provide. But what we must not do in such a situation, what we must see too, is that nobody repays evil evil. No one takes that system of justice into his own hands to seek vengeance for himself. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. This is all founded, again, as we think about how it's founded upon the indicatives of the gospel. The truth that Christ will certainly come, as we saw last week when we looked at the day of the Lord. He will surely come. and He will surely bring judgment upon those who do not repent and trust in him. So we leave that for him. We don't take it into our own hands, but we let the one who, will be, who is the perfect judge, who is able to judge rightly in all things, we leave it to him to accomplish. So rather, in our case, we seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So this is how Paul would have us live with one another. But Paul is also concerned with how we might live before God. We saw this again this morning in that parable of the Good Samaritan, in the text that followed. And we are called to love God with all our being, and we're called to love one another, to, to, to love our neighbor as ourself. And so here, Paul is now turning his attention to how we demonstrate our love for God in a particular way, as he exhorts us how we might respond to the Lord's leading in our life. And the words that come to mind as we think about his instructions are joy, dependence, and gratitude. Joy, dependence, and gratitude. Look at this and see what he commands. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. I said at the beginning that we like clear instructions. 
Sometimes we wonder, what's the will of God for us? We saw earlier in chapter 4 how Paul stated very clearly that sanctification, our sanctification, is God's will for us. If you wonder what's God's will for you, it's your sanctification. And here we have another very similar statement. What is God's will for me? That you should rejoice always. That you should pray without ceasing. That you should give thanks in all circumstances. You see how comprehensive this vision is for the Christian life. Not joy sometimes, but joy always. For we have much to rejoice in. Even when we face trials and tribulations, we know that our salvation is sure. We know that Christ's coming is certain. And we can find joy, even in the midst of sorrows, in the certain truths of the gospel. We are to rejoice always. And when we face these various trials, we have every reason to pray. We're always faced with, with, with uh, challenges that should cause us to pray. And even when we cannot think of anything, we have reasons to give thanks to the Lord. So Paul would also have us pray without ceasing. Now the meaning here is not that every moment of your day must be devoted to prayer in such an active way where you cannot apply your mind to anything else. Obviously, that would be, uh, it would be impossible to do other things that Paul commands us to do. But rather to have that constant attitude of prayer and to have that regular pattern of prayer in your life. For example, when we think of uh, the example of Daniel in the Old Testament, it was his habit to pray three times a day. And I think it's reasonable and fair to say that Daniel prayed without ceasing. He was consistent in his prayer life, always going to the Lord day by day, bringing his needs and his concerns and his requests before the Lord, repenting of his sins before the Lord regularly as a pattern throughout his day, day by day. That's what it looks like to pray without ceasing. We don't grow tired of, uh, in prayer. This morning we had a wonderful discussion in Sunday school about this very subject, especially when we think about sometimes our prayers, they, they seem to go unanswered. We pray and we pray and we're wondering, why is God not answering this prayer? Sometimes the, uh, what God is probably calling us to do is to persist in that thing. Sometimes it's to discern that maybe we're praying uh, outside of God's will. We're not praying for things that are consistent with what he desires. That's a challenge and we... As we pray, we just seek to discern those things. But through it all, we're to persist in that prayer, in, in, in that prayerfulness, generally speaking, I, I, I say. We're to persist in praying for one another. We're to make that the regular pattern of our life. That's what Paul calls the Thessalonians to do. That's what he calls us to do. Joy always, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. If I'm living in abundance or I'm living in want, as Paul uses that language in Philippians. If I am brought low or I am exalted, I have reason to give thanks to the Lord, to give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for us. Wherever he might lead us, we have great reason to do these things because of what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. And no trial that we face can change what he has accomplished, what he will surely do at the coming of our Lord. Now, there's some other specific, um, specific instructions that Paul gives us with respect to how we should respond to the Lord's leading. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What does Paul mean here? In this context in Thessalonica, there would have been, uh, it, people would have known that certain pagan um, 
rites, certain of the pagan rituals that were common in the Greek world, were given to ecstatic experiences. And so some of these new uh, believers, some of these new Christians coming out of that would probably look at certain uh, activities and certain practices with a raised eyebrow. And we should remember that during the early church, there were prophets. There's, uh, we read in, in the book of Acts about various prophets who came and, 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 and gave prophecies from the Lord. Paul does not want the Thessalonians to despise those things. Or as people would speak in tongues, that happened during the early church in the first century. He didn't want them to simply dismiss those things and, and, and say, well, that can't be, uh, that can't be happening, or we, we don't trust any of that kind of nonsense. But he, he rather wanted them to have an attitude that was open-minded to the Spirit's work, but was also willing to test these things according to God's word. We saw examples of that when we went through John's epistles. I remind you of 1 John chapter 4. In fact, I'll turn there and read a little bit from that text. In 1 John chapter 4, you remember how uh, John said very much the same thing about the spirits. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Paul, that's not the only test that John gave in those letters, as you recall. But there is one important test, a doctrinal test. The, the spirit of God testifies truly to Christ, to who he is. that He is the son of God who took on a human flesh and came and gave his life for us as an atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. False prophets and false spirits do not affirm that. They reject that. And there are other ways that John gave us that we might test one who seeks to come in the name of the Lord and yet falsely represents him. He's not saying that, you know, imagining this, this scenario where we see uh, spirits going uh, around our head like, uh, like ghosts in some TV show, but rather that people who come claiming to represent the Lord uh, speak falsely, speak wrongly. And how might we test those individuals who claim that they represent the Lord? We test them according to their doctrine. We test them according to the pattern of their life. Do they love others? You remember these tests from John's Gospel. We test them according to their uh, obedience to God's Word. Do they walk in the light? Are they confessors of sin? Do they recognize sin for what it is and seek to turn from that and repent? Or are they the kind of people who uh, deny their sin or hide it or minimize it and and, uh, and, and, uh, and live with hate for other believers and refuse to acknowledge Christ for who he is. Some simple tests by which we can discern whether someone really is from God or someone is not. And similarly, in Thessalonica, Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians to do the same kind of thing, to uh, not to quench the spirit, not to simply dismiss the spirit's work out of hand, not to despise prophecies, but rather to test everything, and having tested it, then hold fast what's good, but abstain from every form of evil. Now, I am what you would call a cessationist. A cessationist is someone who does believe that the sign gifts are no longer operative. That means that um, I don't believe that uh, people are given by the Lord the power to heal the way that we saw the apostles healing in the first century church. But that doesn't mean that every single uh, possible claim in which God might do some supernatural work um, 
is uh, to be just immediately rejected. We've, used to, we've, we've spoken uh, before about this, and sometimes we hear reports about how people in, in, in far-off countries where uh, the gospel is opposed will sometimes report that they've had a dream, that they, they, they were told to go and to speak to a random individual, or that someone would knock on their door and they would, they, they would see that person, and then that person would uh, share with them a message. And as it turns out, they, they come to that person, they report, and they hear the gospel proclaimed. And sometimes we say, oh, no, 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 that doesn't fit within this paradigm for which we are taught to understand the work of the Lord. I think that's an example where we ought to say, don't despise, don't, don't quench the spirit. Put it to the test. Test it. Well, how can I test those things? Well, I can't know what they dreamed. I can't know the validity of the dream, but I can say something very simple. When that person came to you and said that they dreamed that they were supposed to come and talk to, to you, what did you tell them? <laughs> what did you say? And the person says, well, I shared the gospel with them. And what did they do? They believed. They became a Christian. Amen. What more do I have to say? You shared the gospel with them. I don't have to make a, uh, I don't have to evaluate the question about the dream. The gospel was shared in a very ordinary way. The gospel was received. You see that idea. That, that would be a, a, a modern way where we can apply this text uh, in a way where we don't simply just rule out of hand that, oh, no, that thing can't happen because it doesn't fit within the theological paradigm that I've received, that I've been passed down. We can go into, at another time, discuss the, uh, the questions of uh, the sign gifts and, and, and why I believe those have ceased in our present day. But I don't want to lose track of the text before us uh, with the little time that we have left. Simple truth here in, in Paul's day and the, the day of the Thessalonians is the Spirit was very much at work in some of these extraordinary ways, healing through the apostles' hands, raising up prophets to guide the early church. And Paul was concerned that the Thessalonians should respond to the leading of the Lord, that they should not quench the Spirit and not despise prophecies, but also not receive things gullibly, but test everything according to God's word. And having tested it, hold fast what's good and abstain from what is evil. In short, just as they were to respond well to the leaders that were appointed in their midst, they were to respond well to the leading of the Lord. Finally, Paul concludes with some final commands. As we skip past the, the benediction that we looked at at first, he says, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Notice the way Paul speaks here is not about himself individually. He says, pray for us, plural. Then he looks beyond himself and Timothy and Silas and whoever may be laboring with him at the moment. He says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. This idea is, uh, is, is a common, we don't greet people with kisses today, but in Europe they do. And it was a common way to greet someone. We remember from uh, Second and Third John how John told them not even to greet the false teachers. That would be a way to lend your credibility to them by greeting them as they came into town. Don't even have anything to do with the false teachers. But on the flip side, as there are true teachers who might come through Thessalonica, Paul wants them to greet them in a way that demonstrates that they, uh, they accept these leaders, these teachers who might be traveling through to the churches and ministering to the various churches. We could imagine Apollos being that kind of a person, Silas, Timothy, 
some of the others who labored with Paul. He wants them to accept these men and to pray for them, to pray that they might continue the work faithfully, to pray that God would continue to work through them to spread the gospel. This is the way that Paul would have these Christians in Thessalonica respond to those leaders who are appointed by God, but outside their congregation to serve in other places, and maybe to serve them at different times. How can we apply that in our context? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, in our context, there are many great and wonderful teachers who you can download their sermons and you can listen to them on the radio and you can find their books and read them. Sometimes we're tempted to say, don't listen to those individuals, don't read their books, <coughs> don't uh, just listen to your pastor. I think that's not the best way. I think that we all ought to honor those who are faithful ministers and faithful teachers. We ought to receive their teaching where it's good teaching. We ought to receive them and they should come to visit us and labor among us. And um, we ought to be encouraged by the work that they're doing. And we ought to pray that that work might go forth. In other words, Paul is asking the Thessalonians to look beyond the confines of their little congregation and see that just as God did a mighty work in their midst, he's doing big and extraordinary things in the whole world, and they're part of it. They have an opportunity to participate in that work, or they could withdraw into their own little circle and be completely segregated from that work. I don't think that latter way of doing things is consistent with Paul's instructions here. Paul would have them to pray and to receive those who are going about throughout this, throughout the Roman world, and doing work for the sake of the gospel. Finally, Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Here he brings the, uh, the focus back to his own particular work, along with Timothy and Silas, with whom he wrote this letter. This is a, maybe a subtle indication that Paul already understands that this letter is Holy Scripture, that it is God's word that God is giving to this church. We can look at other, other places, for example, Peter's comments about Paul's writings to see that too. But at the very least, he does not want them to hide this. He does not want them to conceal this letter. He wants it to be openly read. In other places, he'll say, uh, make sure to, uh, to distribute this to other churches as well, this letter that I've written. Paul puts them under an oath before the Lord that they are to read this so that all might benefit from the encouragement that he has given them in this letter. So we're finally admonished then when we think about the word of the Lord. that We ought to receive that as well in a way where we recognize that we are connected not just with the church broadly in our world, but the church in history as well. Just as we've been doing these past several weeks going through Paul's letters. We're receiving his instruction we're doing the very thing that he told the Thessalonians themselves to do. That's why we exposit the word. That's why we, uh, why we spend so much time reading these ancient letters written nearly 2,000 years ago. That's why we'll continue to do that in our life together. This is how we can respond to the leading of other Christian leaders, both in our present and throughout history. Pray for them, to greet them, and to receive their teaching, especially that which is found in Holy Scripture. How can we do all these things as we close? How can we put into practice the commands that we've received? Verse 28 says it all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Only by the grace of our Lord 
operative in our lives, working to sanctify us according to his word. And so we close with these words again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Because of this truth, we can trust that God will enable us to fulfill these things that he has commanded us to do through his servant Paul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would indeed work in us so that we might respond to one another with love, that we might be faithful to your word by honoring those who labor among us. We might be faithful to your word by being devoted to and encouraging those with whom we are in fellowship. That we might be faithful to your word by responding to your leading with joyful and grateful dependence that is open to the work of the Spirit and what he might do in our midst and yet is rooted in Scripture, testing all things according to your word. Finally, that we might be faithful to your word by responding to those faithful teachers who are outside of our congregation as we test their word as well, praying for them, greeting them as we have opportunity, and sharing the teaching that we've received from them, but most importantly, the teaching that we've received down through the ages in your holy word as you've preserved it for us from the hand of men like Paul and Peter and all of your faithful servants. Father, we pray that you would do these things in our lives, enabling us to keep your word. For we recognize that apart from your grace, we can do none of it. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.